the armed forces of Ukraine have significantly enhanced their operations in the northwestern part of the Black Sea. In the meantime, Ukraine has remained largely absent on the agenda of the recent G20 summit. You're listening to the Explain Ukraine podcast. Explain Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, an English-language website about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher, journalist and chief editor of Ukraine World. I invite you to our roundup of the key events and trends in and around Ukraine over the past week, delivered by my colleagues Maxim Panchenko and Anastasia Heresimchuk, journalists and analysts at Ukraine World. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Let me remind you that you can support our work at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We provide exclusive content for our patrons. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. You can find these links in the description of this episode. Hello and welcome. This is our weekly roundup of key events and trends in and around Ukraine. My name is Maxim Panchenko. I'm joined by my colleague Anastasia Harasimchuk. We are analysts and journalists at Interviews Ukraine and Ukraine World. And so, Nastya, will you please usually uh, give us the landscape of what we're going to be discussing today about this last week? Sure, Maxim. Today we are going to talk uh, about our traditional topics, such as Ukrainian counteroffensive, Russian strikes on Ukrainian cities, and Russian strikes on Ukrainian cities. We are also going to tell you about several important Ukrainian special military operations against Russian military facilities. And uh, we will touch upon uh, several diplomatic events that are not directly connected to Ukraine, but have, but have some re- relevance to what is going on here, especially in terms of the Russian aggression. So we are going to tell you about the results of G20 summit and uh, Putin's meeting with uh, Kim Jong-un. Thank you, Nastya. And uh, yes, indeed, traditionally, we're going to uh, touch upon first, before everything else, uh, on the counteroffensive and how it goes. Um, so if you look at the map, uh, the hotspots, the major hotspots remain basically the same. It's the south of Ukraine, near Robotonovo-Prokopivka. No major breakthroughs, uh, breakthroughs uh, there yet. Uh, Ukrainian armed forces keep pushing forward through the defense lines of Russians. And of course, it remains an open question how much time Ukraine still has before the weather worsens and before uh, the warfare will need to slow down because of the weather and of the winter Uh, circumstances. At the same time, there have been some uh, bright, even though tactical, uh, victories of Ukraine uh, of this past week. Uh, So uh, the first one uh, is uh, around the village of Opetne in Donetsk uh, Oblast. This is um, this is a small village, but it is a very important forepost uh, of Russian, well, first offense, now evidence, evidently defense uh, in the eastern rather than southern front. And the major significance of this, uh, of Ukraine regaining control of this, uh, of parts of this village so far, is the unexpectedness with which it was done, because previously Russia had uh, put two 
well, I would say too much time into gaining control of the village and of the small territories there. Uh, I, I think it took her, it took Russia a month or even more to gain control, and some would say that uh, several tens of thousands of lives of Russian soldiers uh, to gain control in that uh, in that uh, region of uh, of warfare. And now Ukrainians have uh, managed to conduct an unexpected move and to first of all, regain at least part of the village's territory and to turn the remainder of the territory of the village into the gray zone. Uh, it's not to say that Russian uh, military are not present there anymore, but they are demoralized because of the unexpectedness and because of the, uh, well, of this comparison of how long it took them to gain control of the village and how quickly Ukrainians have managed to retake it or parts of it. Uh, another development, uh, equally tactical, but still very important, even arguably even more important, uh, is around Andreevka, uh, which is um, to the south of Bakhmut. Uh, this is uh, the Bakhmut's uh, southern flank. And the importance here is that it also is the major point of Russian defense, major forepost of Russian defense there in the, in, in the region. And there have been several villages that Ukraine has been trying to regain, including Andreevka. And uh, this is uh, what has now happened, it is confirmed by Ukraine's foreign ministry, or sorry, um, not foreign ministry, but by Ukraine's uh, defense ministry, that um, Ukraine has managed to retake control of that village. And thus it is expected that uh, Ukraine will be able to move even further, to push uh, Russians even further uh, back uh, to the east now that this, uh, now that Russia's defense in this particular village has been broken through. Uh, if you look at the map closely, there is uh, going to be further to the east a railway uh, thread running from north to uh, the south, and presumably the front is going to be pushed further in that direction. At the same time, uh, this is going to be a major complication for uh, Russia in terms of Bakhmut defense, because uh, from now on it is going to be even harder for Russians to um, with, withstand Ukraine's encirclement there. So, fingers crossed for any further developments. Uh, at the same time, uh, the notorious story of uh, Russian strikes on Ukrainian peaceful cities uh, has also continued, and there have been further unfortunate events uh, in this respect, uh, about which I will, uh, with regard to which I will ask my colleague Nastya to provide us more detail. I wish I could say that the week has uh, passed calmly and there were no attacks by Russia at Ukrainian territories. But unfortunately, nothing changes in this regard and Russia keeps terrorizing Ukrainian civilians and keeps striking the civilian uh, infrastructure and facilities. So um, during the last week, the attacks had the same nature as as usually and it's horrible to say as usually because uh, this kind of attacks has become a new normal for, for for Ukrainians so Russians used this mixed type uh, of attack uh, using uh, missiles and using strike drones uh, so um, there were several 
several waves of attacks, several waves of night attacks uh, at Ukrainian cities. And we can divide these attacks into two directions. So mostly we can say about the attacks on the south of Ukraine and namely uh, against the south of Odessa Oblast, where the Danube uh, ports are located. And the primary target there was were exactly these uh, Danube ports facilities. And unfortunately, these massive attacks uh, resulted in, it resulted in not only um, damage of uh, facilities and infrastructure. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of people were wounded, and uh, according to the uh, estimates at the last attack uh, on the south of Odessa Oblast, six people were were wounded, and there were strikes uh, at the northern regions of Ukraine, namely uh, Kiev and Kiev Oblast, were under a massive uh, attack by uh, by um, the strike UAVs, and unfortunately, the um, city itself and the surrounding towns. Uh, faced, experienced uh, heavy damages to the uh, houses and residential buildings. Uh, so it's very difficult to uh, talk about such issues, especially that they have become new normal. And maybe our listeners would uh, tell that they are bored of or they are tired of uh, listening to the same set of uh, news, this, this similar uh, events, the similar type of strikes, but it's not possible to get used to such uh, such things. Even though it happens almost every day, these are people's lives, these are uh, destinies, these are um, economic, economic facilities of Ukraine. So uh, the violence, the terror cannot be normalized. And uh, going away from this emotional point, I couldn't help uh, being emotional here. Uh, I also want to draw the attention of our listeners to imminent threats, new imminent threats from uh, the Russian side. Now we are talking about the drones attacks and there are missiles attacks while Russians are using cruise missiles. And sometimes uh, ballistic missiles attacks also take place. But there are some alarming developments, uh, especially before the uh, autumn-winter season. Uh, the last week we received the news that Russia has placed uh, 46 operational tactical missile systems called Iskander along the Ukrainian border. So these systems, they are launchers uh, for ballistic missiles. And unfortunately, Ukraine doesn't have um, air defense cap capabilities to shoot uh, down these kind of missiles. Uh, so the threat is getting even more serious and we uh, don't know uh, what kind of attack Russia is going to launch and uh, how many and how often uh, these uh, ballistic missiles attacks uh, may take place. And another alarming uh, alarming news uh, is uh, reported by the New York Times. Uh, it says that uh, Russia is managing to get around sanctions and uh, exports control. And according to the last estimates, Russia managed to produce more missiles than uh, before the war. So um, 
Russia had time to adapt to this uh, sanctions regime, and now it managed to build these uh, these um, links and alternative routes to get uh, chips necessary to produce missiles. And allegedly, Armenia and Turkey are involved in such activities. Uh, so there are these the whole illegal networks. Uh, that are used to get these necessary details from the Western Europe, from the USA to to Russia. And it's uh, getting more and more difficult to control uh, such supplies. And now uh, these figures are uh, really um, horrifying. Now Russia is capable of producing 200 tanks per year and 2 million shells. Uh, in total, it's more than the U.S. and Europe can produce per year. Uh, and um, the only thing that can uh, slightly console us that Russia is using much more than it's uh, producing even now with these raised numbers. But still, we see that after the uh, year, uh, more than a year and a half of uh, the war, uh, Russia, instead of being... Um, pressured by sanctions, manages to raise its capabilities, which is uh, much more dangerous for Ukraine than ever before. Yes, indeed. And in this sense, uh, my usual uh, comparison that comes to my mind uh, when it comes to sanctions and uh, Russia's adaptation to sanctions, all this uh, makes it sound like it's not the West trying to uh, apply any effective pl- pressure on uh, Russia and thus help Ukraine win the war. It rather reminds me of a divorce that the West is trying to uh, to have with Russia because the actual effect is just that we do not want to, to like to trade anymore rather than to have any actual impact on uh, in the battlefield. I think it may have impeded Russia uh, for some period of time uh, before it found any any ways to circumvent uh, Russia, uh, anti-Russian sanctions, like, for instance, with the help of the UAE, for instance. But anyway, this is how it looks to me. Uh, this, however, uh, should not eclipse the uh, other, I would say without exaggeration, glorious developments that uh, Ukrainian special forces have managed to carry out this past week. Uh, there have been several of them, and we're not going to share them with you. The first one is uh, Ukraine's regaining control of the four uh, drilling rigs in the, to, in the Black Sea. Uh, a bit of a history about uh, what these rigs are. Uh, back in 2011, I believe, uh, so it was still under Yanukovych rule, uh, Ukraine bought two rigs from uh, Singapore and built uh, two other rigs. They had been built in Sevastopol before that, before the occupation of Crimea, and uh, installed them in the Black Sea, in the western, northwestern part of the Black Sea, in order to uh, promote Ukraine's uh, drilling of uh, natural resources on the sea shelf. However, however, these uh, drilling rigs were seized by Russia in 2014 under the occupation, uh, after the occupation of uh, the Crimean Peninsula. And the crux of the matter here is that uh, ever since Russia has been trying and successfully uh, managing to use these rigs not just 
uh, for drilling, or maybe not so much for drilling at all, but rather uh, for military purposes, because they previously had been used uh, by Russia, previously, I mean, before the full-scale invasion, already had been used uh, by Russia for uh, reconnaissance, for uh, jamming signals, and thus uh, controlling basically the northwestern part of uh, of the Black Sea uh, basing, and that of course is uh, basing, and that that of course it was a major hindrance, uh, which transpired even more during the full scale invasion, when uh, Ukraine had to effectively. Uh, counter-effect, in a way, the uh, impact uh, that uh, these rigs uh, had uh, when used by Russia in terms, once again, of uh, of the military ways they used them. So, um, the story here is that uh, this week, Ukraine's uh, special forces managed to regain control of these floating rigs. And if you, once again, if you look at the map, uh, you can uh, visualize them for you to understand the situation, being to the east, uh, further to the east from this Miyini island that was deoccupied uh, in summer 2022, and uh, further to the Crimean uh, shore. So you can um, imagine this being quite far off Ukraine's coast. And when I see, when I say Ukraine's coast, I'm for the purposes of this narrative, I, uh, I say that this uh, that, that I mean the government-controlled territories, so the Odessa Oblast territories. Um, this also, uh, and this has already been confirmed by Ukraine's uh, military intelligence that yes, that there has been this operation of reclaimants, and uh, the the operation has been successful. So that of course is very good. This also explains these snippets of different information uh, that uh, has been floating around Ukrainian media. Uh, for quite some weeks already about several episodes of clashes between Russian jets and Ukrainian cutters about the salvation of a Ukrainian marine who had spent 14 hours uh, in the open sea. But uh, this news had not been tied in with any context previously. And now we understand what this has been about, about this special operation that eventually has turned out successful for Ukraine. I think my assumption here would be that uh, this operation can be embedded in the context of Ukraine's bigger, uh, bigger attempt to provide security and control uh, of the northwestern part of the Black Sea. Primarily, I think, for the purposes of uh, of the security of grain corridor of the grain corridor, uh, which is now, uh, well, I would say operating under an ad hoc basis. Let me put this, put it this way, summarize its operation this way. But uh, essentially what Ukraine has managed to do is to push Russia's control, Russia's navigation control, Russia's um, jamming signals, uh, capabilities, uh, Russia's uh, basically eyes in the northwestern part of Black Sea further to the east. And that way, the the safety area and the level of safety in this area has grown. So my assumption would be that uh, this has been done for the security of the Green Corridor. Now, the question here, and something I will 
leave you with when it comes to this topic. The question here is how uh, many capabilities uh, does Ukraine have to uh, keep control of these reclaimed rigs? Because yes, Ukraine has been able to regain control over them and not just that, but also to reclaim the uh, the machinery that had been installed there by Russia. And by machinery, once again, I uh, I mean the radio electronics that had helped Russia control this part of the sea, and now Ukraine has it. There have been the seized, Ukraine seized, I mean, uh, stockpiles of the, uh, of the missiles that were used by Russia because the rigs had also been... Uh, operating as the uh, as a point where Russian helicopters could refuel and restock uh, their missile supplies uh, on their way further to the northwest of the Black Sea, but now that Ukraine controls these patches uh, in, in the Black Sea, uh, there is a big question whether it will or will not be too hard for Russia to kick Ukrainians back from from those uh, rigs and that of course we'll have to see whether it happens or not because i assume that this is a very important thing for very important strategically important uh, patch of well not land but you know what i mean uh, in this part of the in, in this part of the sea so we'll have to see however this has not been the only successful uh, operation that uh, ukraine has conducted in this last couple of days and um, Nastya, can you please talk a little bit more about what happened in Sevastopol? Yes, another very important uh, special military operation was conducted by Ukrainian uh, special forces on the night of 13th of September. Uh, Ukraine um, made a stroke, like stroke the uh, Simferopol uh, harbor. It's the place where Russian shipyard or um, ship repair plant is located. And as a result of this attack, a large landing ship uh, Minsk and submarine Rostov-na-Donu were destroyed. Uh, apart uh, from that, the uh, very plant was also heavily damaged, damaged. And according to the South Operation Command, according to the com uh, command of uh, its uh, press uh, secretary. Uh, the plant now reminds uh, of Asia's. So here we talk not only about the uh, vessels that Russian Navy lost, but also about the uh, capacity to repair uh, the vessels, the ships, uh, which is a huge uh, strategic uh, loss for Russian military forces and namely for Russian Navy. So uh, I would uh, focus my attention on the destruction of the submarine. Here it's uh, an issue of a critical importance, even though the destruction of a landing ship and the damage to the uh, plant itself is also an important issue that uh, undermines Russian military capabilities. Uh, why this destruction of submarine is so important? Um, first of all, it was a unique chance for Ukraine to um, to destroy it while it was not underwater, while it was not on the active duty. Uh, because Ukraine doesn't have capabilities to destroy uh, any submarines while they are underwater. 
Uh, and we know that Russians use their submarines as uh, caliber cruise missiles carriers, and they also use these submarines uh, to attack Ukrainian territories. Uh, so uh, it was kind of a unique operation because it was the first time in history when uh, uh, in history of wars when a submarine was destroyed by using a cruise missile. Uh, we still don't know what type of cruise missile was used. Allegedly, it was Storm Shadow. Some people say that it was Neptune missile. So uh, there is no exact information of the type of weaponry used uh, for this attack. Uh, the uh, key uh, result here is that Russia now has minus one submarine. And by the way, it's also the first uh, loss of this kind of equipment uh, in modern Russia history. So before that, uh, Russians didn't have uh, problems with their submarines. Uh, so um, in looking at the strategic point, uh, it was very difficult to, to plan such an operation because the uh, Sevastopol harbor is one of the safest places uh, in terms of uh, Russian military capabilities, and it's really difficult to reach this territory. So Ukrainian armed forces managed to reach it and used this chance to destroy the submarine, uh, which was uh, above the water. Uh, to conclude this, I would like also to draw to, to zoom out a little bit and to uh, suggest uh, this vision to our the following vision of of the situation to our listeners is that please pay attention how consistently Ukraine is trying to make uh, the more or less safe environment to create more or less a safe environment namely in the western, northwestern part of the Black Sea. Uh, because apart from the things that uh, we have talked about when it comes to the uh, oil rigs, uh, and apart from the um, developments uh, around the Sevastopol harbor, Nasta has talked, uh, talked to us about, Ukraine has also uh, managed to destroy uh, a C-400 uh, missile uh, anti um, sorry, air defense uh, missile complex uh, in uh, Yevpatoria, which, if you look at, uh, at the map, is once again uh, situated on the western shore of uh, Crimea. Now, this is the uh, second uh, such uh, strike on a similar, uh, very costly, very expensive, over a billion dollar expensive uh, air defense missile unit, because on uh, the 23rd of August, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Ukraine has already uh, hit one of those on the Tarhankut Peninsula, which once again on the map of Crimea is the westernmost uh, point of, of Crimea. So we can imagine that Ukraine is trying to, to the extent possible, to make Russian capabilities when it comes to air defense and air reconnaissance uh, as weakened as possible here. And uh, that way to make, um, uh, to, to, to make the situation in, in this part of the Black Sea more, um, well, uh, beneficial in a way uh, for, uh, for Ukraine's military effort elsewhere in the south of the continental Ukraine when it comes to the defense and protection of uh, the Green Corridor, of Ukraine's ports uh, on the Danube, of Odessa, 
etc. So this basically reminds a very consistent pattern. More, more there to see, hopefully. Uh, now let us turn to the second part of the podcast where we will, as usually, dwell on the international agenda and where Ukraine fits in. The first of such developments would be the G20 summit. And uh, I would say that, uh, well, my uh, assessment would not be too, uh, too positive for Ukraine. It might not be too negative, but uh, it certainly is less than what Ukraine could have hoped for. So the summit happened uh, last weekend uh, on, uh, I, th- I believe it was 9th, 9th, 10th, or maybe 10th, 11th of, uh, of September. Uh, it was uh, hosted by India, and this is important because it, it, would, it will have much to do with the nature of the, of the summit and with the nature of its impact on Ukraine. But first, let me point out the fact that Ukraine uh, was not even invited to this, um, to this summit this year. And it might look natural to you, uh, our listeners, because, uh, well, Ukraine is not part of the G20. It's not one of the members. But what's important here is, uh, Ukraine, is that uh, G20 is an informal gathering. And thus, uh, it can take some liberties as to whom to invite. And this is something that enabled Ukraine's presence in, uh, in a, on a similar summit in Bali last year when Indonesia was hosting it. Uh, moreover, uh, not only Ukraine's president Zelensky uh, was representing Ukraine at the summit last year, albeit via a VC means, uh, still... Apart from that, President Zelensky also chose this particular platform, the G20 summit, to deliver the idea uh, and to, to pitch basically the idea for the first time of his 10-point uh, plan, peaceful uh, plan for Ukraine. Because it was very important to uh, pitch this plan to uh, to a broader array of international actors rather than just to the Western players. And that was a very good place uh, to do that uh, from that story, uh, from that point of view. This time uh, Zelensky was not even invited and to make things even to take things even further, uh, there is uh, a notion that this may have been the result of um, uh, of India's considerations uh, as the host of that summit this year because um, Ukraine, uh, well, let me start with India because for India, uh, when it comes to the image that it was uh, going, that it was that it wanted to gain with hosting this summit, uh, was uh, that of uh, a very reliable international platform, very reliable international partner, who can provide uh, a forum for the discussion and solution of global problems. So India basically wanted to f- f- the success of hosting of this uh, G20 summit to uh, basically become a very good uh, argument in a way in the forthcoming elections that are going to happen in India in 2024. Which is why presumably India tried to avoid any unsolvable issues on the agenda of the summit. Which is why uh, the Ukrainian portfolio, let me summarize it as that, uh, even though 
one would say that uh, it should be called Russians, Russia's war against Ukraine. It's, there is no necessity to mince words here. So it was absent, basically, from the agenda of the summit, which, of course, uh, was a mishap for, for, for Ukraine. Uh, once again, we can compare the uh, final declarations of the summit from this year and from the last year. And last year, it was much more, more vociferous about what was going on in Ukraine. And even though it was stipulated in the final communique of the G20 summit last year that there was no... Um, common, no joint uh, take between the G20 members, uh, no unanimity that way on uh, how to characterize and who to blame in Ukraine. Still, it was evident that uh, for the part of the, for a part of the members of the G20, it was a principle, uh, a principle thing to uh, present it as Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Russia's aggression against Ukraine. Now, in 2023, the final communique was very, very vague. Uh, it did not refer to the guilt of a specific party. So nobody said that uh, Russia was guilty of invading Ukraine. It had some very toothless, in a way, uh, calls on all the parties involved to uh, respect international law, blah, 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 or you know, the usual calls for everything good against everything bad. And uh, this, of course, uh, that that way, once again, was the reflection of this India's assumed desire to avoid this cornerstone issues uh, that are unsolvable on the agenda of the summit. And Ukraine's foreign ministry already reacted to this uh, toothless position and uh, basically said that there is nothing to be proud of when it comes to the parts of the final communique that have to do with, uh, with uh, the Russia's war against Ukraine. And Ukrainian ministry even published uh, the screenshot of the of this part of the text that has to do with the war in Ukraine, uh, and uh, it is it has uh, many places that are crossed out in red and uh, substituted with the suggestions of Ukraine's foreign ministry uh, that, for instance, for instance, it, the declaration reads concerning war in Ukraine, all states must act in a manner consistent with purposes principles of the UN Charter in its entirety. And there are crossings in red wherein Ukraine is suggested to be against Ukraine by Ukraine's foreign ministry. And all states must act in a manner, blah, blah, is suggested to be Russia must act in a manner consistent with purposes principles. So this, of course, is, um, is very wrong in a way because... Um, we understand India's position as that of a host country, and we understand the, uh, that uh, the world is getting wary of uh, Ukraine's problems uh, when it comes to Russia's uh, to Russia's invasion. Because, well, basically uh, and notoriously, uh, this is how it looks in many countries' eyes. Ukraine's problems when it comes to Russia's aggression. But uh, still, it should be reminded again and again that uh, the spillover effect of Russia's aggression against Ukraine is enormous for the entire world when it comes to food security, when it comes to energy security, when it comes to the basically establishment of uh, the Soviet, of the, uh, of the Cold War style blocks rivaling blocks in the world and this is no good for the world uh, generally 
And uh, so once again, let me stress and finish this topic with this, that the spillover effect is enormous and the world should not think that it is that easy to um, put aside the situation with the war, with Russia's war against Ukraine and just leave things in that, that it will come back and haunt uh, all the, basically the majority of players in the world. So there's that. But this, this is only one of the major diplomatic developments. Uh, there has always been a meeting between Kim Jong-un, North Korea's dictator, with uh, Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, basically also a dictator. And uh, Nastya has more to say about this. Exactly. And uh, this news about the uh, dictator's meeting is also a good continuation of your thought about the spillover effect. And I would, uh, telling about this news, I would also I would also like to add a little bit to these um, negative consequences of ignoring or paying not enough attention to uh, the Russian aggression against Ukraine. And here we talk about the um, giving a free hand to authoritarian regimes. So if uh, not pay attention, enough attention to what is going on here and to Russian actions against Ukraine, uh, the world and the liberal part of the world gives a free hand to authoritarian states to act the way they want to. And um, looking at this attitude, looking at the fears of the liberal part of the world. Authoritarian regimes would think that they are allowed to impose their um, their aggressive imperial will on the parts of the world they want to. And um, a good illustration of this kind of cooperation, the next step of this kind of cooperation is this meeting between uh, North Korean and Russian leaders. Uh, so this meeting took place on the 12th of uh, September in Vladivostok in Russia. And um, why this topic is important to Ukraine, uh, I will not dwell on um, more details regarding the North Korean-Russian relations, but I, I, I would just draw your attention to the aspect which is important to Ukraine and as a result, which is important to the uh, global security in general. So uh, as it was expected, the two uh, dictators, the two leaders were talking about military cooperation. Uh, as uh, it was reported, uh, Russia is extremely interested in getting um, weapons from Iran and from North Korea. And uh, some time ago, Russian Minister of Defense uh, went to North Korea uh, and uh, he visited uh, military capabilities of this state. And already from that time, there were talks about the mm, Russian interest in getting weapons from North, North Korea. Uh, on the one hand, we understand that it's a necessary step for Russia to refill its uh, stocks of weapons, and we understand that Russia lacks uh, the weapons, even though it, uh, its um, capabilities are um, more active now and its 
weapon reproduction is more active still it takes time to produce as much weaponry uh, to uh, refill these stocks so to keep fighting the war against Ukraine, Russia needs immediate solutions. And uh, these weapons supplies from its allies is um, almost the only way out for for Russia. Uh, So um, what kind of cooperation it is? Of course, North Korea would also like to get some benefits from Russia, not only Russia buying or getting Uh, weapons from it. And by the way, what is also important to mention here is that uh, North Korea is a great partner from Russia in regard of weapons supply because um, North Korean stocks of shells is compatible with Soviet equipment Russia uh, is using at uh, the war against Ukraine. So we can uh, talk about the millions of pieces here. And also North Korea has quite a considerable, considerable amount of Uh, Soviet-style tanks T-54 and T-62. So that's uh, where, uh, from where Russia can uh, get uh, more supplies. And uh, we also talk about um, about missiles, but it's not confirmed information, but most probably Russia also needs uh, to replenish its missile supplies. Um, what would North Korea get in return? Of course, here we talk about money, about goods, and the fact that uh, North Korea uh, suffers from famine from time to time and lacks uh, food is uh, obvious, so Russia can pay by supplying food uh, to North Korea. But the most important here is technology. North Korea needs more sophisticated, more developed technology in terms of uh, nuclear capabilities. And Russia is ready to provide this technology uh, in return of getting weapons from North Korea. And here we come to the point where not only Ukrainian security, but the global security is under bigger threat. Because uh, if we talk about the uh, further development of uh, North Korean nuclear capabilities, uh, we are talking about the global uh, threat to the regime of uh, non-proliferation and we are talking about the dangers to the um, neighbors of North Korea and we never know uh, what the North Korea leader would dare to uh, to do and what provocations he would be ready to um, to make. Uh, and it's also another example of uh, spillover effects. It's not only security of Ukraine, but it's the global security, the security of liberal values and the Western liberal bloc in general. Thank you very much, Nastya. Uh, with this, we're going to wrap up our uh, this week's episode of Explaining Ukraine, of our traditional weekly roundup of events in and around Ukraine for the last seven days, uh, in order to deliver to you the picture of the latest developments. Uh, my name is Maxim Panchenko, and I was joined by Anastasia Harasamchuk. We are journalists and analysts at Ukraine World. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. And let me remind you that uh, we would be thankful for your support of our work at patreon.com slash Ukraine World. 
and you can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypal ukraine.resisting at gmail.com thank you very much and we'll meet you in our next weekly episodes Thank you.